0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I want to start out by noting that I was surprised a few nights ago, uh, pleasantly surprised by something that I read on the internet. I uh, happened to be up at like 3 in the morning because there were raccoons banging around in my backyard, and I didn't think that was such a good thing. So after driving off the raccoon family, I I was a little pumped up and didn't feel like going right back to bed, so I was on the internet for a few minutes where I discovered that I'd received an email from Jefferson Morley. He's the the proprietor, I guess you'd say, of JFK Facts. It's a podcast, and, and we've had... Mr. Morley on this program three times uh, for the excellent work he's done. Uh, He's got three excellent books out there, and we find him to be just an incredibly credible resource. On his podcast site, he had the headline, What Will Biden Do? And it was dated October 20th, and as I read and noted that it said at 8 p.m. tonight, I'll be talking on the JFK Facts podcast About the Mary Farrell Foundation's JFK records lawsuit against President Biden, which was filed in San Francisco federal court on Wednesday. This really got my attention. Right below it was the the subsequent epistle from Mr. Morley that was reporting the next day saying there was favorable coverage greeting the Mary Farrell Foundation versus Biden case. And to quote from the piece, Morley said the CIA may be going into the modified limited hangout route in response to the Mary Farrell Foundation's lawsuit over JFK records, but the coverage of major news organizations indicates the Foundation's agenda of accountability enjoys respect in the media. Mark Caputo broke the story for NBC News with a headline of a pointed question, what are they hiding? Caputo noted the CIA's record of obfuscation of the assassination and linking it to widespread public suspicions that there was some kind of plot. Caputo went on to quote a surprising critic, Rolf Moat Larson, a former CIA man who posits a small plot, that's in quotes, of JFK's enemies within the agency. In a remarkable exchange, Caputo and host Joe and Mika Scarborough grappled with the possibility of CIA involvement in the JFK assassination. At CBS News, Ed O'Keefe framed the story with a deftly edited archival footage from November 22nd, said the CIA's denials are noted, but the focus is on letting the foundation spokesman, which in this case was uh, Morley, be me, make our case. In the accompanying story on CBS News, Emily May Chazor quoted one of the most important passages in the complaint, which was filed by the Foundation's attorney, Bill Simpich, in San Francisco Federal Court. To quote from it, In explaining the JFK Act's stringent declassification standard, Congress said when an agency presented evidence of identifiable harm that would result from disclosure, the identifiable harm had to consist of more than speculation. Records could not be postponed because of some conceivable or speculative harm to national security. Rather, in a democracy, the demonstrable harm from disclosure must be weighed against the benefits of release of the information." And in a measure of widespread support for full disclosure, the conservative site Newsmax joined the liberal networks in reporting the story and calling attention to the undisclosed records, including those of deceased CIA operative George Joanides, who was chief of covert operations at the CIA's Miami station and served as a case officer for a New Orleans-based CIA-funded exile group, which had a series of encounters with Lee Harvey Oswald back in 1963. Yahoo News picked up the story via Huffington Post. Courthouse News reported feds sued for withholding records in JFK assassination. And the story even reached England, where the Independent emphasized the legal angle, declaring historians sue Biden for illegally withholding 16,000 records. Morley closed by saying this coverage is not accidental or charitable. It is a measure of the credibility of the Mary Farrell Foundation and the JFK Facts blog to which we would like to add, is also a measure of the credibility of the work that's been done by attorney Bill Simpich, who has been on this show numerous times and we're happy to say is ready to join us now again to talk about this very subject. Welcome back, Bill. Doug, how are you? Doing well, and I appreciate what you are up to. I was quite stunned. I've talked to you on a fairly regular basis in, in weeks and months in the past, and somehow I didn't, I didn't get you were doing this. I guess it's my bad.
1: No, no, no. It's been a long, long struggle to get this lawsuit uh, ready to go because we had a lot of negotiation, a lot of thinking, a lot of research to do to get it right. And so I never wanted to set a date or raise expectations. So I'm pleased it's dropped. I'm pleased we got a good reception, and I think we've got something that's going to last for the long run here. I think we're going to survive in court and do well.
0: Well, I think that for the benefit of our listeners who who know that we find this whole subject of great interest. On this program. We need to still, I think, go back 30 years in time to Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. What really got this going was, in Oliver Stone's movie, at the very end, there was a little panel that was put up showing that there were thousands and thousands of records related to the assassination that were still kept hidden. And this caused a firestorm across the country. Would you not agree?
1: That was one of the big takeaways from the movie. Uh, whether you were for or against Stone's theory of the case. People united around his idea of getting these documents released, which was offered to him by the JFK research community. And in turn, it passed unanimously and was passed by George Bush. Can you believe it?
0: Yeah, the JFK Records Act. And it said uh, it set up a board to start combing through records and getting a lot of them released the Assassination Records Review Board.
1: And it got millions of records released, and we've learned a lot since then. I always maintain that uh, what we haven't read yet, because most of them are not digitized yet, uh, but that day may come soon, which we can talk about, they're more important, in my opinion, than what the little we've got left. We might find a couple bombshells in here, but I think a lot of bombshells are sitting in the archives. I think there's more bombshells to be obtained if we can win our request for new releases, which is also part of this.
0: Well, Mr. Morley, Jeff Morley uh, sued the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, which is different than suing the president, I guess. But he, d- he did not win that case. One of the things he really wanted to do was get those records that I just made mention to in his description of uh, George Joannidis, and I believe William Harvey was another fellow he's quite interested in, because there's a story behind these guys related to what happened at JFK. We need to know more about it.
1: That's right. And what's so crazy, if I can m- make a certain point here, is the JFK Records Act is all is sweeping, uh, defining all types of records as assassination records that must be released, and Morley got caught up in a 12-year-old battle because he asked for these documents pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act because this JFK Act didn't come into full bloom until 2017, uh, and so he's in this crazy situation where after a 12-year battle. He still hasn't been able to get most of the documents released about Joe Aniti. And this absurdity is what we're trying to—one of the other things we're trying to address in this case as well is, you know, all these documents like, you know, the Harvey documents uh, that we haven't seen that aren't part of the collection, like the, the Joe Aniti's documents that aren't part of the collection, they should be added to the collection. We need a new search. So that's another aspect I don't want to get lost in
0: the shuffle. Well, we should put a little perspective on this. Back in 1964, uh, when they closed the Warren Commission report on this, they admitted that we're going to keep some records hidden away, and their time scale at that time was 75 years, meaning that documents be released in 2038. When they revisited this in in the House Select Committee's investigation in the 70s. When they got done, they said, "Well, we're going to keep some records hidden for twenty-five. Our records for twenty-five years, which takes you to twenty-twenty-eight. 50, Fifty. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Fifty years, right, to twenty-twenty-eight. And and then when the records when the records review board concluded their work, they also said they put a twenty-five year time span on it, which took us to twenty seventeen and Donald Trump as president. Tell us what happened then.
1: Well, well, it, it's a wild uh, yarn, but briefly. The great thing about the review board is they did get millions of documents released almost right away in the night, uh, but it, which is still 30 years after the fact. But they did a good job there. The problem is it was the infancy of the internet; and these documents weren't digitized, so you still had to, you know, head off to Washington D.C. or write them and ask them for particular documents. So it's incredibly laborious. But people have labored in those decades. Uh, the, the, but the documents that get held, got held back, we think with some justification, there's some good documents in there, and those are the ones that we can't seem to get fully released. Uh, they've been leaking the last ones out over the last five years, since 2017, which was the due date. And we finally got fed up and said, you know, this has to end. Uh, so we filed suit this month stating We want the last of these documents released
0: now. Well, in 2017, Donald Trump, as I understand it, uh, they released some records which were very, very dubious of, of value. They seemed to be really sort of trashy things no one was terribly interested in. And Trump said, although he'd made noise about how I don't see why we shouldn't release these records when push came to shove, he kicked the can down the road. He kicked it into the Biden administration and Joe Biden... I guess, was it six months ago, had a chance to do something? He, he pushed it off till, what, December?
1: Right, right. He basically did the dog ate my homework uh, excuse, you know,
0: around COVID. <laughs> COVID was to blame.
1: That's the latest,
0: new and better excuse. Some might say, what are you worried about? We got till December. They're going to, uh, they could, uh, Biden could ha- see to it this release then. I, I gather you're not overly optimistic that that's going to happen.
1: Well, you, you, we're, we, what we're trying to uh, do is we're trying to take the optimistic approach at this moment. Uh, we did file this lawsuit to put their feet to the fire and basically say, you know, go out there, do the right thing. Uh, you, you know, you've said over and over again you needed another year to get all this done uh, right. So do it. Get it out there. And uh, then if, if they get it out there, then we can focus on – uh, unscrambling their bad bookkeeping with the records and getting a new round of records searches going. We're trying to take the optimistic approach that they're going to get it done this time.
0: We'll see. All right. I know that for people who are interested, and I'm sure many listeners will be, uh, at some some time back, Jefferson Morley on his on his website, I guess it was JFK Facts, did a list of what the most interesting things that we we might we might want to see. Um, Get released were. And that that was quite a provocative list.
1: It certainly was. He had items on there like, uh, you know, the Carlos Marcello takes, for example. Uh, you know, a lot of people. There's various theories, uh, 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 and we don't subscribe to any one of them. But we think that look at the military, look at the mafia, look at the CIA, look at the Cubans, all is fair game. Uh, the Carlos Marcello uh, tapes, for example, uh, only a few of them have been, are in the collection, and they should be in the and th- they should be far more vigorous in getting these things out there because Carlos allegedly uh, confessed to the JFK case, and it's on tape. Now he was an older man, so I'm not taking his admissions to the bank, but let us hear. It. And this is the same with the Joe Inez material. Who Joe Anidis was the case officer for the Cubans. And, 62, 63, uh, and he was the CIA guy. And then he was in charge of letting the House committee decide what documents they could see in the late 70s without talking about his conflict of interest.
0: I, I understand, believe they, they, Bill, that they actually brought him out of retirement to become the liaison to the House Select Committee. And, of course, nobody at the House Select Committee was aware of the fact that he had skin in the game, that he was someone That's who was right. deeply involved in, in all of this material
1: was why they took the incredible act of bringing him in, because they needed to know what they knew. And, and George Joannidis could tell them what they needed to know and needed to maybe not look at. So it was an outrageous act for Joannidis to get involved. But that reignited the investigation when uh, Morley and, and others uh, smoked out Joannides as well. So that's another a fascinating uh, saga, which we mentioned earlier. And then there's the Bill Harvey Uh, personnel
0: file. Yeah, talk about that. That, uh, This is is something that I know is near and dear to Jefferson Morley.
1: Oh, yeah, and me and others. Bill Harvey was a fascinating character. He uh, ran the ZR Rifle Program, which was basically some kind of assassinations program, though we don't know if it ever actually got used. And it was also piggybacked from a program that was basically based on rifling through foreign embassies desks looking for information and conducting wiretaps and all the rest of that kind of thing. Harvey was a triple threat guy. He ran Staff D, which was a listening operation that included break-ins and everything else to get what they needed to know about other foreign embassy secrets. And he also ran the ZR Rifle program, which was this kind of combination program I mentioned. And then he also ran what was called Project Mongoose in '62, which was a plan to take over the Cuban government during that era, and it it got snuffed out after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Harvey basically sent some men into Cuba during the height of the crisis, infuriated the Kennedys, got him into a big scrap with Kennedys. He hated the Kennedys, called them four-letter words. They hated him. They shipped him to Italy. I should say his boss, uh, the CIA, shipped him to Italy, where unfortunately a lot of the mafia guys went. So uh, there's been a lot of smoke around Bill Harvey and his connections with mafia people like Johnny Roselli for many, many years. And uh, we don't know if smoke means fire in terms of the Kennedy case, but he hated the Kennedys. He had a motive, unlike somebody named Lee Oswald, who nobody can discern a realistic motive for him at all.
0: I want to do want to plug in for David Talbot and his book on Alan Dulles. He had a very excellent section in there on on Mr. William Harvey. But I I think it was in Morley's book he he talked about the fact that – I can't remember which book it was actually. But one of the two books mentioned that an underling of William Harvey was on a flight to America and uh, just by chance runs into his boss, I, I believe, on a flight to Texas. It's is very close to the time of the assassination. It's like, yep. Bill, what are you doing here? You didn't seem to have a satisfactory answer. And that's that's one thing that, that's still in those hidden records, What, what his, where he was and what he was supposed to be doing. Right,
1: right. We know very little of his time when he was running the Rome office uh, after June of
0: 1963.
1: And his whereabouts, David Talbot tried to get flight records and all that. I don't think he's been successful in that effort at all. Dealing with these agencies is an absolute nightmare, and that's one of the reasons for this lawsuit. We want people to see how robust this JFK Records Act should be after 2017. People have tried to use it as a way to get new records in the past, and the court said, no, 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 it's premature. Well, now 2017 has come and gone. It's not premature anymore. If it's got teeth, let's use it to obtain new records. If not, it's time for another statute that's got even more teeth, because CIA and these other agencies have done terrible work in providing these documents over the years. And we need greater accountability. We need greater access. We need greater transparency.
0: So, Bill, I'm not an attorney. What happens next? You filed this case in, in federal court. It's trying to compel the president to act. What, what happens next with the paperwork?
1: We're sending the papers to the president and the archives. Nera is the other defendant here. We are expecting them to do the right thing on December 15th. And if they don't, then we will go to the judge and say they've got to.
0: You put this in place for what's supposed to happen on December
1: 15th. December 15th is Biden's self-imposed new due date. They're five years late already. We are you know, going to decide our next steps as events progress, but I expect that what will happen is they will file a motion trying to kick us out of court, saying you don't have the right to be in court on this, you're not a government agency, we'll say we've got an interest in the case because Mary Farrell uh, is the foremost collector of these records in the private sphere and aids the archives and is noted in the archive site as being a partner and probably most importantly has the most documents actually online of any body in the country including the archive so we've got skin in the game we feel that we've got what the courts call a zone of interest that allows us to pursue this case properly and adequately and uh to that end we also expect to turn to the judge and at some point soon and say, we need enforcement, uh, because even if they turn over every document, we've still got to get these documents in apple pie order. There's various problems with the way they've kept the records. We want it easy for citizens to obtain these records, and we want the searches that were recommended by the review board to be completed. They were never completed 25 years later, and we want a new search, as I've mentioned as well. Uh, to all the agencies, one last go around at least.
0: So well, that's the remedies we're seeking. What, what if what if Biden and and the defendants in this case just more or less say uh, we're not we're just not going to do it? Do you, do you have recourse after that?
1: Oh, we do. We filed the lawsuit, of course, and wh- what the lawsuit enables us to uh, obtain is various remedies. One of them, the, the fanciest one, is called the writ of mandamus. Okay, which is basically what you do when an agency's made its final decision. You say, okay, you've made your final decision. Now the courts need to take a look at it and see if you follow the rules. We think we've got a wonderful case showing that due to the passage of time alone, they're way past their due... The courts would be inclined to cut them a little slack if it was a year or two. At this point, it's five years. They're way, way past their due date. Okay. okay. So that's... The strongest remedy. Uh, and then we've, we're asking for you know, things that are similar. You know, we're asking for an injunction to make them do various things. We're asking for a declaration basically chastising them for not doing various things. So, you know, that, that's basically the ask in the lawsuit. All
0: right. Well, I do have to ask one one question that uh, that came up that I thought was sort of funny was that uh, is there possibly that Trump took some of those records down to Mar-a-Lago? <laughs>
1: Well, Jeff, Jefferson Morley has not ruled that possibility out. The latest we have learned is that the documents involve Iran and China. I always look at Trump as a grifter, first and foremost. So if he thinks he's got money or an opportunity to get money, he'll use it. So I can't rule it out. And he's yeah. a creature of habit.
0: <laughs> the CIA has some, done some dumb things in the past, but is it, it, considering that there's some things they really do want to keep... Uh, out of the public domain, uh, turning him over to, to Donald Trump would be about the worst way possible to achieve that.
1: Of course, the horror is that Trump, you know, has been involved in this. He's had consultations with the CIA in 2017 and 2018 about this case. A couple of days before the release, he made it sound like he was going to release them all. And, you know, of course, that could have been just posturing. You know, Pompeo was his buddy. He was running the CIA at the time. He probably didn't want to embarrass Mike. Huh.
0: Well, one other thing I just want to toss out there, as much as we may not be fans of Ted Cruz, I think the people in the uh, the research community of JFK have no reason to believe that actually was Ted Cruz's dad out there passing out leaflets with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> no. To say Trump is a conspiracy theorist is one of the funniest things I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> I should note that we're speaking with Bill Simpich, Bay Area activist and attorney extraordinaire in in this case. And we certainly hope that you will come back soon as things develop in this case.
1: Thank you. And I wanted to do a shout out to Larry Schnapp and Mark Adamchik and and everyone at Mary Farrell and everyone else who has helped make this lawsuit happen and move this case forward in general, including people like you, Doug. It's
0: just been Wonderful work. All right. All right. We do what we can. I understand also that some good friends of ours were included among the plaintiffs, in this case, of local people.
1: Oh, I should give them a shout-out, too. Tink Thompson and Gary Aguilar Tink is the author of a couple great books, including the most recent Last Second in Dallas on the shooting and what he, I think, has found righteously to be a crossfire. And Dr. Gary Aguilar, who has done some of the very best work in the medical field on the crossfire probability as well.
0: And thank you for forward promoting for us, because we plan to have both those gentlemen on next month.
1: That's fantastic. They both live here in Northern California, and they're part of our argument for why the judge here did hear it, because they're researchers like the rest of us and all of us around the country have an interest in this case, getting it resolved.
0: All right. Bill Simpich, keep up the good work and come back soon. Thank you, Doug. You take care. All righty. So I think uh, I should probably put in a couple plugs here for people that have been great friends of this program. We've been talking about Jeff Morley and referring to the fact that we'll be having dr gary aguilar and tink thompson back on this program next month but i want to take a look back to at our good friend jim di eugenio his jfk revisited documentary is currently available uh, through your streaming services we consider it quite a worthy effort and and did in fact talk to with jim about it some months back many years ago in this program we spoke with some of the um folks involved in the landmark movie jfk oliver stone uh, both with zach Scalar the screenwriter and jane rosconi who acted as a the assistant to mr stone and all things related to the facts of the case so that's seven guests on this program that we can cite in, in, in as regards our uh, current developments assassination records review board uh, what it was supposed to do and what people are going to try and force it to actually do i think a lot of it leads back to oliver stone whom we've never had on this program, but, but may wish to in the future, if not for the JFK case, for his new documentary we need to tell you about. In this, we will cite a review in Variety from Owen Gieberman about the new documentary titled Nuclear. See, Gieberman, it makes a powerful case for nuclear power. Noted the article, In Nuclear, his intensely compelling must-see documentary, Oliver Stone makes the vital and historical case that nuclear power has been the victim of a perception-slash-reality conundrum, one that is now in the process of being overturned. The perception is that nuclear power is dangerous, too dangerous to be an essential component of providing our energy needs. The reality, argues Stone, is that nuclear power is clean, abundant, and safe and that the ominous facts of our energy crisis, the looming catastrophe of climate change, the hopeful but stubbornly incremental growth of renewables like wind and solar is too urgent for nuclear power not to be an essential component of providing our energy needs. We tend to agree with this. We also would agree with the phrase stubbornly incremental growth of wind and solar. These are good, clean sources of energy, but ramping them up to the scale we need is a pretty tall border. And we must agree with this article in Variety when it says, for decades there's been a primal fear of all things associated with the word nuclear. The protest movements against nuclear power that took root in the late 70s and early 80s lumped all of quote nuclear unquote into one bucket, nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. It was all bad. That's why leftist activist types in the no-nukes era made a cult fetish of mispronouncing the word nuclear as nuclear. They were saying, in essence, the possibility of being nuked is inherent in this technology. Therefore, it must be treated as toxic. If you argue against this idea, as Stone does, then those who believe it will repeat the following as if it were a self-evident mantra. Safe? You're crazy. Six words. Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, done. The fear of nuclear disaster is a primal fear that is seen by the anti-nuclear ideology as a transcendent deal breaker. There's no possibility of having a rational dialogue about it because the pro-nuclear position is treated by the anti-nuclear position as if it were, in effect, the pro-nuclear disaster position. Says Variety, Stone invites you to check out the forces who happen to agree with the idea... That nukes are safe, namely huge sectors of the rest of the world. Once you get outside the United States, nuclear power has a very different image. It has been used for decades to power the economy of a Euro socialist nation as enlightened as France, which now gets 70% of its energy from nuclear. To which they note, each French citizen on average produces one third the carbon emissions of each citizen of the United States. It closes by saying 60% of Americans now say that they're in favor of nuclear energy. And to this day, 20% of American energy is generated by nuclear power plants. Anyway, we have a great deal of respect for the position Oliver Stone is putting forth and a great deal of respect for Mr. Stone himself. And maybe if we're lucky, we can pull a few strings, people we know in common, and bring him on this show to talk about that. And of course, his movie back in 1991. We need to take a short break, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett listening to Radio Parallax, and uh, stick around.